Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for tuning in to the Max Schmarzo podcast. We got some fun topics today. We're going to be talking a little bit about strength. Yeah. Believe it or not, we're going to be talking about strength, um, both maximal strength and how strength is produced. And is strength even really the right word? Probably more like force, but whatever. We'll use strength for the discussion as well. And then some fun topics at the end. Um, maybe answering some questions if we have time. And, um, well, you know, as always, as they always an athlete, seven day free trial. If you want to give it a go, I like training like an athlete because I like to still be an athlete. And if that's your cup of tea, well, then this might be a training program for you. Six days a week, big upper body, explosive lower body. That sounds like something you like. Well, seven day free trial on the always an athlete team. You can join It's on the train heroic app. Give it a go. If you like it, stick around. If you don't no hurt feelings, thanks for trying it. So let's hop right in. Now, um, I want to talk about strength training. Dun, 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 dun. What a weird, arbitrarily vague topic. But specifically, what is strength? So when we think about strength, we need to understand the underlying principles of what it is. First off, it's not even the right word to use. I think force production is a better term, right? We use the word strength to describe types and ways the body produces force. So strength is a general term to describe the organized expression of force application and generation. So strength might be defined as the most amount of weight you can lift for one rep. It might be defined as how many reps you can do while maintaining 90% and above your total force producing abilities. It's like a capacity of strength, capacity of force production. Strength is defined maybe by how fast you can move a lightweight. So the velocity of an object, all this reverts back to is force and how is force produced? Well, we know that in the body, the only thing that's going to be producing force are the contractile elements inside your muscle. Then there are different types of muscle actions. There is the concentric shortening action. This is truly the only one that is going to create propulsive torque to create movement. This is the shortening aspect in isolation, I should say, because for example, you might have a muscle which is helping produce a propulsive action, even though it is acting isometrically. But in, it only does that because in the grand scheme of things, it has a specific role. An example might be if you're running, your legs might be actively contracting, but somewhere in your torso, you're maintaining your posture. And so that isometric contraction to maintain your posture is allowing for force production to occur in the lower legs in the proper application. But moral of the story, we have our contractile element, the actin and myosin, and that machinery of shortening is what creates torque, that rotation around a joint. When you do those together in unison with multiple joints, you get the output of locomotion or movement. So you might see an isolation movement where you isolate just one joint and you see that torque and that rotation like a knee extension. And that's occurring because those muscles are shortening. Now the things get, now the things, the body gets more and more complex, the more variables you add into it. So if you want to determine like just in pure utmost isolation form, who can produce the most, who can lift the most amount of weight in a single leg knee extension, Things like cross-sectional area of the muscle have very high correlation to that outcome. So in a pure isolated setting, 
when we remove other variables, we know cross-sectional area plays an important role as to who can lift the most amount of weight. But then people look at and say, well, if we have a bunch of really strong people, what determines whether or not someone can move a lightweight fast? And if this lightweight is moved fast amongst the strong people, and it follows the exact same relationship to that of the strong people produce the heaviest weight. So let's say we have 10 people. I'll make this example really easy to understand because I can tell it might get confusing. 10 people, um, in order of these 10 people, we can rank them one to 10 in the strongest. Okay. But they're all already very strong people relative to a weaker cohort of people. So these 10 athletes, they do a knee extension. We see who can lift the most amount of weight possible. Cool. And we find out and we rank these from one to 10. Then we take a really light medium weight or lightweight and say, who can move this as fast as possible? And we do it again. Now, if the correlation is perfectly one, the strongest person moved that same lightweight faster than everyone else, then we know that strength is basically a universal quality across all velocities and load. It's simply a matter of who is the strongest and that strength is expressed regardless of load. But as research has told us, this is not necessarily the case. It turns out when we have someone who is really strong and might be number one of that group of 10 strong people, when you measure a lighter load, they might be seven or six or five. It's not a perfect one correlation. And so that tells us the explained variance. So in other words, if everyone did the strength testing and they ranked one to 10 and those same people ranked one to 10 in the same order when they did the light load testing, then we would know, well, this strength thing, the ability to produce force is a universal quality. And assuming that that ranking held stable across all loads, we could then say, well, maximal strength or any other strength for that matter is a universal translatable quality across all different loads. But if it's not the case, it tells us there are other variables at play beyond just say who can lift the most. So what you might do as a scientist, you might first see who lifts the most and draw a correlation between who lifts the most and certain physiological neurological qualities such as cross-sectional area of the muscle, maybe fiber type, maybe neurological aspects. And then you might factor analysis this, this grouping of say five variables that you might have decided to look at in their correlations. And then you might do that same assessment against that lighter load. And you might find out that specific variables like the fiber type, the cross-sectional area, um, the neurological impulse rate of firing, play a different level of significance at different loads. So this tells us as a researcher that there are many different variables at play in regards to how we express strength or force production. Now that's in an isolated setting. Things get even goofier in a big macro setting where we have lots of muscles at play because now it's just not a matter of isolated single joint movement. What are those specific muscular qualities? Your brain is very smart and it probably innately knows, hmm, here are the muscular qualities I can pick from if I were to run or jump or sprint. I have lots of potential muscles and positions and joint angles and moments of inertia I can utilize. And it cooks up the best recipe for you based on your physical qualities. And so that's why when you extrapolate these isolated findings to the macro scale, 
it becomes very difficult because we're dealing with a system which is integrating these subsets and the synergy of these subsets, that is like your knee extension ability, your ankle, your hip, you know, um, we'll just say those ankle, knee and hip, and the body has to integrate those. It might integrate those differently per person based on their physical abilities. Not to mention other factors because no longer is it just an isolated contraction of a limb in a control setting where you're just measuring how much weight you can lift. You might even make it more confusing by adding certain moments of inertia in terms of velocity and run-up speed. You might be looking at certain aspects um, that incorporate other variables involved as well, such as the elastic tissue and the storage of elastic energy. And so this is why things get really confusing because in an isolated setting, we can determine and isolate specific muscular qualities that have a role. In a integrated setting, we have trouble figuring out and determining specifically how the body and brain integrate these physiological qualities into movement. Why can this really strong person not figure out how to organize his body in a way to utilize his strength in the best manner? The central nervous system has a learning element to it, and that learning element makes this translation typically very muddy. And so what happens is you might look at someone and they might run and do a long jump. In order to do a long jump, they have to produce lots of force into the ground. That's physics. We know that's a determinate outcome. How they produce force into the ground is a lot trickier to figure out because yes, we can measure individual isolated joint actions like the knee extension, hip extension, and so on. But that's not necessarily the same ability to force production they're going to express in an integrated manner. Your body might lean a little more towards one direction or the other in terms of what it's trying to utilize to figure out how to produce the more, most force into the ground. Not to mention, when we're in an isolated setting, there's a minimal skill aspect. Right? You're just extending your knee because you're just extending your knee we can think about every, as we add a single muscle to the movement, because in just knee extension, you just have one joint in action, but every joint you add into action, you add multiple muscles into action and you add complexity of organization. That makes stuff really tricky in regards to figuring out how things translate. So it makes the whole idea of application very imperfect. Because on one end, you might err on the side of just doing the macro outcome. I know if I practice this movement, I'm at least going to be loading the muscular tissues responsible for this movement pattern. And, and because of that, those tissues will get stronger. Or you might go to the very isolated world and say, well, I know that these tissues are going to be used in that big macro movement. I'm not really sure exactly their dynamic interactions are going to be. But if I know an idea that if I can get these physiological to express a strength, not maximal strength, the type of strength, as I mentioned earlier, that light load, medium load, or high load, the type of strength that is utilized in this movement, then maybe it can integrate it better. And so that's why we have so much debate, confusion, and perfectness to a lot of these movement questions. Because anytime we also change the physiology and we change the movement, now we're starting all over again. So it does seem pretty tricky. And people get a lot of bang for their buck just working on the extreme ends. 
people will say, hey, I'm just going to do the movement pattern and I'm just going to train some of the right muscles. And then, you know, at least I know I'm doing the right muscles and at least I know I'm doing the movement pattern and we're probably on average going to make some progress, right? That makes sense, but it's not about making some progress. We're not in the industry of just trying to be good enough. I think for the sake of scientific endeavor and uh, scientific um, uh, betterness, that's not a word, but scientific pursuit, that's the word I'm looking for. We should try and really figure this stuff out, but we need to have a fundamental theory from which we work with. And if we can't even agree or we can't define what we're trying to work on, that's where we have issues. And so that's why I talked about this whole thing in the beginning is talking about and understanding what is force, how are muscles producing force? What are the physiological roles of these muscles and movement? Can we isolate certain joint actions that are responsible for big determinant force production aspects within a movement? Like you might say, oh, this squat pattern or this knee extension pattern is a high determinant variable in terms of jumping. So I know if I can improve strength qualities that are specific to that movement, then I can actually improve that movement. And that's where things get tricky again. So I apologize for this. Let's think about improving strength qualities. Let's say you want to improve the explosiveness of your legs. Now, on one end, you might say, well, let's just do explosive movements. That's fine. That's fair. But what is explosive? We're trying to become maximally explosive. And what we have determined is that there are these motor qualities that in an isolated setting present themselves as somewhat independent. You have the ability to lift a really heavy load, right? The guy who lifts the tons of weight for one rep might not lift the lightweight as fast as someone else who's of equal strength because the guy who has, uh, who is not as strong, but similarly strength to the big, strong person might have other qualities that allow them to move that lighter load very fast. And so what are those qualities? Well, it might be the neurological impulse rate. It might be the cross-sectional area of type two fibers. It might be whatever we can talk about. But the point is there is a difference. So just getting really strong might not be the only answer. However, lifting really heavy weights and getting stronger can be part of the answer. Getting maximally strong and training for maximally, maxim, let me take a step back. So because of that, we can isolate different types of qualities. We can things like, this is maximal strength training, where we're lifting a heavy weight near maximal effort. And with that, are associated specific neurological and physiological aspects. High levels of motor unit recruitment, the neuron that talks to the muscle, all those neurons are being recruited and recruited at a high, high output. You're really trying to lift that heavy weight. Even though it's heavy, it's not moving fast. You're trying to move it with all your effort. High levels of volitional effort. Then you might say, okay, that's what happens when we do maximal strength training. But what happens when we do medium weight, kind of fast as powerful we can possibly be? Well, we know on these medium weight, fast and powerful movements, we have a large impulse and burst of electrical activity at the beginning. And the outcome of the velocity of that movement, because we're not trying to move it as heavy, move it as fast, is determined by our ability to accelerate it. So the ability to accelerate a load might be a specific quality. We move up really lightweight. We might be trying to produce as much force as possible, but the determinant 
production of force in a light, light weight is based on what's called our starting strength or the ability to initially develop force. So now I've outlined starting strength, acceleration strength, and we've outlined maximal strength. Then you might say a totally unloaded setting because there is no load. The ability to produce speed is purely based on contraction velocity of the muscle. So absolute speed or contraction velocity. We have now um, starting strength, acceleration strength, and max strength. So we have four different independent qualities that within them are determined by different variables of the neurological and muscular system, which we can then pick from to decide which one's going to help my athlete best. So doing things like heavy maximal strength training might have the potential to increase certain physiological aspects of the muscle. It might make the muscle stronger. It might help with the rate of firing. It can't be repeated often because it's very taxing. And it also might lend itself to maybe something like a little bit more hypertrophy, increasing the cross-sectional area of a muscle, than which a maybe an unloaded movement would lend itself to. And so if you determine that this athlete needs to put on some more cross-sectional area of a muscle, you might lean towards hypertrophy and hypertrophy mechanisms, but you might not just want to do that in isolation because you're trying to build explosiveness as well. So you might do that hypertrophy like specific uh, or leaning towards the hypertrophy specific side, but through a means which also improves um, some of those other qualities like your explosive strength and maximal strength. And so you might see things where someone does a setup where they're trying to accumulate some level of volume because hypertrophy might be associated with the amount of load and tension bared upon the muscle, but they might do it in a way that doesn't mean, or that doesn't, I should say, that doesn't say only go hypertrophy realm and ignore the explosiveness. It might actually then be done in a way where you might have 10 sets or eight sets of three reps. So you get the large volume you're trying to get versus three sets of eight. But each one of those reps is done in a way which lends itself to maybe a more explosive movement pattern. So I'm just kind of talking right now. So I apologize. For, I didn't write any notes on this. It's just straight off the head. So if I get lost or I lose you, I apologize in this. But what I'm trying to get at is that when we train, we have these subset of somewhat independent motor qualities within the muscle. These motor qualities are determined by specific neurological and physiological variables. Those variables can be manipulated based on how you train. So an easy example, the difference between training and the goal becomes very important now because someone might say, I'm going to use maximal strength training, the method of lifting a heavy weight, to become more explosive. That doesn't mean the goal becomes maximally strong training because maximally strong training is an outcome. It's an outcome and you might use a subset of methods to get that outcome. You might do some type of hypertrophy. You might do some type of maximal strength training as well. You might do different other aspects, but the goal is to be maximally strong. Well, on the other hand, you might say, I want to be maximally explosive, but on my route to become maximally explosive, I might need to use maximal strength training methods. I might use some hypertrophy methods, but the end product, my determinant of success is, did I become more explosive? So like ingredients in a pie, you are selecting the right ingredient ratio to result in a specific outcome. And having a strong definition of that outcome can make things much more 
tangible, make progress much easier to measure and assess. Because as I mentioned, there are lots of things that are unknown. There's lots of imperfectness. There's lots of questions we have. So just getting someone quote unquote stronger might not yield an outcome that yields you then or outcome that is more explosive. And if your goal is to be more explosive, and you just end up focusing on maximal strength because you think will help explosiveness, but it doesn't transfer to explosiveness, you did not do what you set out to do. And that is so wildly important. It's having an end macro variable that you're trying to assess and improve because at the end of the day, if that is improved, regardless of your training methods, you made progress. But you can get so caught up in the weeds of trying to make progress in these other areas, let's say become obsessed with just trying to have maximal power outputs and trap bar jumps. And you get that athlete to have a higher power output and trap bar jumps, but they don't translate it into their single leg explosive finishes on the court. Then you did not make progress. The opposite could be true as well. You could have not made them more explosive on trap bar jumps. The power metrics didn't go up. You trained it. So, but they jumped higher. So in this imperfect world, you didn't improve their power output, but they jumped higher. So your training method worked technically in spite of your efforts, despite them trying to get more powerful in the weight room and more powerful in the trap bar jump. And they didn't get more powerful in the trap bar jump, yet they become more explosive. You at least realized, well, something happened that was positive here. It obviously wasn't the power output, but it allows you to reassess that program. And it goes back to that specific variable you're trying to work on. As I mentioned in the very beginning, like the athlete trying to do a long jump, it's that complexity of force expression in a movement. So at times we might be right for the wrong reasons or wrong for the right reasons or however you want to say it, but at least we can try and navigate it based on supported evidence of our understanding of some of the motor structure and qualities and independent things that exist in the muscle, we can appreciate the imperfectness. And with that, we can try and develop specific methods to assess translation, or I should say, um, transfer of a motor quality. An example is you might do something like, Hey, I want to get someone maximally strong. And I want to get someone to have a explosive one leg finish that dunks a basketball. So I'm using maximal strength to improve that. I'm going to improve their maximal strength. I'm going to track that number. Then I'm going to improve a maximal strength, maybe related jumping quality, like a one-step jump. If that goes up and then their single leg jumping ability goes up, maybe we can draw some corollary there. But the idea is it's this really ugly framework that isn't perfect that we're just trying to operate in. And so having feedback from the athlete that they are progressing, that they feel like they're getting better, understanding that that is a bit of information you can collect and that you can understand as to whether or not your training methods are actually working is really important too, versus being caught up in just trying to make someone stronger or more explosive on a specific metric in hopes it translates. We should be doing our best to try and understand whether or not it's translating in real time by asking the athlete, are they feeling like they're improving it? And are there ways that we can assess it and measure that? So I guess I'll leave that there for today. I'm not even sure to label this podcast. I was going to talk about some other stuff, but I totally didn't. I kind of went on a rant, hopefully a helpful rant, hopefully one that helps explain things. Maybe it made things more confusing, but you have more clarity through the confusion. 
Because maybe in your mind, you think that other people think they have this all figured out. In reality, they don't. But in reality, there is a lot of things we can understand that a lot of people still don't understand and don't bother to understand. So the fact of the matter is you can read a lot of these textbooks and understand, infer, and decide whether or not there is evidence for some of the things you believe and evidence for the methods you're using. But then we also need evidence, not just the methods you're using could be potentially useful, but are they actually translating themselves to sport? So I hope that makes sense. I appreciate you guys listening. If you made it this far, thank you. I hope you enjoyed. Thanks for tuning in the show. I appreciate you guys and take care.